Your offering if you want to make it in physical you can drop it off there's the offering plate in the back so as i said this has been uh, an exciting week i know last week was an awesome awesome time we talked about that aspect of sanctification as we working our way in the outer court of the by our outer, outer court of the tabernacle so we've walked through the construction of the tabernacle. We've walked with this thing throughout and we've seen God's earthly dwelling place come to a realization. Last week was the final part. That was the outer court. So the last part of the construction was finished. And what we saw in that message was the fact that God was giving a picture of sanctification. It was a picture of us either coming to the Lord. When we looked at the tabernacle, that was a picture or a place of of, of closeness, of intimacy with God. And what we saw was this process of coming to the Lord through the steps, the stair steps of the tabernacle, or on the other, on the other side of it, those of us drifting away from the Lord, right? And we saw that. And what happens with so many of us, and many people kind of think, you know, well, well, maybe I'm just kind of standing still. I'm not really drifting, but again, I'm not really actually coming close. And I'm just telling you that's an impossibility. If you're thinking that in your mind, I hate to break it to you. You're drifting, okay? Yeah. Just a little heads up, all right? So if that's our mindset. So what we've seen is we saw the spiritual aspect of the tabernacle. And what we're going to do is we also talked about the practical and the historical as well. And what I want to practically talk about is the fact that with the tabernacle, this is an elaborate tent, basically, is what we've got here. And this elaborate tent was designed to be broken down, to be put on the backs of men, and to be carried from place to place. And what would happen was whenever they would find a place where they were going to arrive, Moses would say, okay, this is the location. We're going to set up camp. Right. So everybody's going to set up their whole village. But what they would do is the first thing that would be set up would be the tabernacle. And wherever that tabernacle was assembled and built, the rest of the community would be built around it. It was always to be the center or the hub of where they were. And it is a picture to you and I that the word of God, the God that the Lord himself needs to be the center of our lives. Everything we are, everything that we do should be centered around the Lord. And the very same thing, that was the center point of their community, and it should be the center point of our lives. And we've seen this as we've simply looked at this. Uh, another thing we talked about last week was the fact that this is a time period where the Israelites are, the Israelites are in obedience. Okay? They're doing the right thing. They're following God. Man, they're, they cheerfully brought their offerings. They're cheerfully doing the works. So they're doing this with the right heart. And what we found is this time period of obedience, which is wonderful, it actually follows a period of disobedience. If we go back to Exodus and we see in Exodus 32, we see what actually happened was the fact that they had actually created a golden calf. Remember that disobedience? And what God did was God extended mercy to them. God extended grace to them. So what we find is many times with the Israelites, their obedience is following a period of disobedience. That is a, a pattern that is indicative in their lives. But if we think about you and I, remember, we, and our, we are pictures, right? We're pictured in the Israelites. So the same pattern of us being obedient, following disobedience, and experiencing God's mercy, unfortunately, is a pattern that you and I many times live with as well. So when we recognize that in us, and that's just a little friendly reminder for us, a little bit of encouragement, <laughs> before we jump into Exodus 38, 21. So if you're in your Bible, Exodus 38, verse 21 is where we're going to be. The message this morning is called God's Reckoning. Well, let's pray real quick for the message. 
Lord, we thank you for today. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that are here. God, thank you for our visitors. Thank you, Lord, for returning visitors and for our members. God, I pray that you'll help us today, Lord, to hear from you. Uh, Lord, I know that you've spoken to me, Lord, through this message. And God, uh, the, the work that was put in, uh, God, I pray that, Father, you help me not to get in the way today. Lord, I pray that the message, Father, would come exactly as you intended it to be, as you directed it, Father. Pray that your power uh, will work in it and through it, God, to speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the reckoning, God's reckoning, Exodus 38, 21 says this. This is the sum of the tabernacle. We might rephrase that and say, this would, this is sums up the tabernacle, okay? That's kind of what he's saying. This is the sum of the tabernacle. This sums up the tabernacle, even of the tabernacle of testimony, as it was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites by the hand of Ithamar, son of to Aaron the priest. So we see now this construction project has been completed. And what Moses does is Moses says, hey, you know what I want us to do? I want us to do an accounting of all that has taken place. And I'm going to assign Ithamar. Ithamar is his nephew. He's one of the Levites, and he's going to assign him the job of doing this. Notice that it says in that verse, for the service of the Levites. Reason being, the Levites are going to be accountable to God for this tabernacle. This is their responsibility. So what he's saying is you're going to understand every part and piece that went into this construction of God's dwelling place. And another man that we see that stands accountable is also Bezalel. Bezalel, Bezalel was, uh, was a man who uh, we learned actually about his accountability back in Exodus chapter number 31, where God actually calls Bezalel by name. In Exodus 31, verses 1 through 6, it says this, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship, to devise cunning works, to, to work in gold and in silver and in brass, and in cutting of stones to set them, and in the carving of timber to work all manner of workmanship. Verse 6, And I, behold, I have given with him Aholiab, the, the son of Ahissamach, of the tribe of Dan, and the hearts of all that are wise-hearted I have put wisdom, that they may make all that I have commanded thee. So we see that this is God's project, no doubt about it, but what we also find out is the fact that God not only gives instructions of what's to be done, but he empowers the men that will do it, in order to fulfill what he's asked of them. Now, if you and I equate that to ourselves, when God calls us to do something, what does he do? He empowers us to do it. We look at our own inadequacies whenever it comes to things that God calls us to do. We go, what, I can't, but I, but. And we come up with all the excuses, the same way Moses did, right? And we struggle with this issue. But what we need to understand is God will empower us to do what he asks us to do. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through 8 says this, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. He's called us to glory and he's called us to virtue, to live according to his will, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. He says, look, I will literally draw you out of this world and all the things you're fighting with, all the things you're struggling with, you're trying to be virtuous. I will allow you to do that through understanding of me. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to your temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you, if they be in you, and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our talents, our gifts and abilities were not given to us for our benefit. They're not for us. In fact, they were given to us so that we might be profitable 
unto God, right? And the problem is that we are so self-centered, we think it's all about us. I have this ability, so I'm going to use it for me. And God says, I gave that ability so you can use it for me, right? And so what happens also, there's another part in here I want you to notice. Back in verse number six, it said, that they make all that I have commanded thee. Notice the word command. Does not say all that I have requested of you. It is a commandment. So with a commandment comes accountability. If I tell my child, go clean your room, right? Well, am I going to check that they clean their room? Yes or no? Yes? You guys with me? All right, cool. Just nod your heads if you're with me. That's all you need to do. That's all. We're, we're good. <laughs> there has to be nothing beyond that. You don't have to raise your hands. Nothing like that. All right. So we say there's an accountability, right? So like a commandment comes accountability. We might say with a commandment comes a reckoning, a time when we will face whether or not we've done what we were supposed to do. So with Bezalel, Bezalel was given accountability. We understand he was given a command. Let's see how he did. Verse 22 in the accounting. Uh, and Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, so Bezalel did exactly what he was asked to do. He fulfilled his calling, and he did it according to God's will. Now, could we say the same of us? All right? He fulfilled his calling, his commandment. And if we assess our own hearts, have we fulfilled the commandment that God's given us? Now, some might go, whoa, 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 what, what commandment there, Pastor? <laughs> I don't remember getting a commandment when I got saved. I don't remember this thing. Well, let me just tell you, in Matthew 28, 19, is just one example of it. We call this the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things. The same thing he told them, do all the things that I commanded you to do, whatsoever I have commanded you, he says. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. He says our commandment is that you and I are supposed to share the truth of the gospel with the world. Is that our focus? Is that where we spend our energy and our time? Is that where our hearts are? Are we all about telling this broken world of the great love of God? Is that our drive? We have to check ourselves. Understand, there is coming a day when, just like Bezalel, we will give an accounting of ourselves. Yeah, but we'll get to that in a bit in the message. But what we do know is the fact that his, his offering, his work was accepted. It was done with the right heart, right? And we think about that. We go, man, you know what? The right heart service needs to be done. When we do something, it needs to be done from the right place in our own hearts. And Paul warns us about this in Colossians. He tells us this about this type of, of, of speaking to believers about the wrong kind of service. And whatsoever you do, this is Colossians 3, verses 23 through 25. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Make certain that what you're doing is for God and not for the sake of men. Verse 24, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. He says, remember who you serve. But I want you to notice this part. It says, of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. And we're going to get to what that is in a bit. Hold on to that verse in your mind. Knowing you shall receive the reward of the inheritance, you serve the Lord Christ. Verse 25 in Colossians but he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. Again, pointing to accountability. Pointing to accountability. Now back to our text, verse 23. And with him was a holy son of a 
Hisamak, sorry about that. Sorry, Aholiab, hate to ruin your name there. Uh, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver and a cunning working, workman, an embroider in blue and in purple and in scarlet and in fine linen. So where Bezalel was the foreman of the job, he was the one that was running the whole deal, his right-hand man was this guy, uh, Aholiab. And Aholiab's deal was he, was a, he worked all the decorative engraving and all the fabric work. That was kind of like his specialty. So he sort of supervised that kind of stuff. But what you'll notice here is that with Bezalel, there's a higher accountability. He was called specifically to lead, right? He was entrusted to lead the process. And what we find as we look at our own lives, as you and I are entrusted with leading things spiritual, there is a higher level of accountability. And people always go, oh, that's true for the pastor. Yeah, it's true for pastors. Yes, we're absolutely accountable for the people that we're leading. But guess what? It's also for those that are parents, for those that are, are teaching, for those that are discipling others, you are caring for the souls of others. Listen to the accountability. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, right? If you're discipling somebody, you are watching for their soul. You're helping them as they that must give account, it says. Remember, this is all about accounting. They must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Again, the principle of accountability with God, but we're going to get to that. Back to the accounting, verse 24. All the gold that was occupied for the work and all the work of the holy place, even the gold of the offering was 20 and nine talents and 730 shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary. So first of all, some people always think, man, where did they get all this gold? Where in the world did they get all this gold? Now, if we think back, back to Exodus 3, what happened in Exodus 3? God made a promise back in Exodus 3. He told them, when you leave Egypt, what's going to happen is all the Egyptians are going to load you up. They're going to give you treasures. So God made that promise in Exodus 3. We didn't see it actually realized until Exodus chapter number 12, after the 10 plagues came upon Egypt. And boy, at the end of that, man, they were like, get out of here. Just go, 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 go. You want some stuff? Yeah, take some gold. Take, just get out of here. Go. They're shoving them out. So as they go, this is Exodus 12, verse 35 and 36, where this happens. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians. Look what they got. Jewels of silver, jewels of gold, and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. So they left with great riches. And what's so cool is the fact that, you know, these folks understand they're dirt poor. They're slaves. They're now loaded down with riches. And what's amazing, and we understand this is where it came from, but what's amazing is when we get to Exodus 35, God asks them for an offering. Instead of being like, man, I finally have money. I finally have gold. The Bible says that they lavishly just give to God's work. They just keep giving and giving and giving. So much so that literally God, Moses has to go, hey, people, please stop bringing stuff. We have too much gold. We have too much silver. We have too much brass. Please stop. Can you imagine that? That's the heart. So this is done with the right purpose, the right heart. Their giving was done properly. And as we have that up to speed, understand there's something we need to pay attention to. So now we understand where the gold came from, but understand this. There's a little phrase in there, back in that Exodus, verse number 21, the verse I was just in. Let's see if I can get back to it. It is, says this, and the 30 shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of the sanctuary. Now, we hear the word shekel and we think, uh, if you've ever watched old movies, a shekel, we think that's a coin, right? Now, what you need to understand is coins did not show up until 850 years later. They don't have coins at this point in time in the world. There's a place called Lydia that's in the year, the year 600 BC is the very first time a coin ever shows up. That's 850 years before that. So this is not talking about a coin. It's actually talking about a unit of measurement. 
It's talking about unit of measurement, a shekel. If it works out to our today, right now, it's about 12 grams, a little bit less than half of an ounce. So this little tiny measurement. So now if we take that shekel, which is a half of an ounce, and then we take what's called a talent. Now we've studied talents in the past, that's about 100 pounds. So we take the, the, the measurements that he's given us in this verse, and we calculate it out, and it comes out to 2,931 pounds of gold. Hello. Can you imagine 2,931 pounds of gold sitting in this room? Man, that would be pretty awesome. I've never seen a gold bar in real life, but I imagine 2,931 would be pretty, pretty impressive. And if you calculate that out to, pay to today's value, that's worth $89.7 million. $89.7 million. And we hear that number and we're like, dude, what would we do with $89.7 million? New car, maybe. New house, maybe. Plane, maybe. Reese Cup factory, maybe. Who knows, right? We, who knows what we would get? We think, we go, man, oh, man, that's exciting. We think about, man, oh, man, if I won the lottery at $89 million, what would I do? And we get so excited about that. But what God needs us to do is understand to keep a perspective on earthly material things. Because as human beings, we get so overwhelmed with things. We go, oh, we get so excited and we get all emotionally involved. But understand, Job said it best. In Job chapter number one, verse 21, he says this, and said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He says, basically, look, hey man, I brought nothing into this life, and guess what I'll take with me? Nothing. Goose egg, right? Yet we spend all this time trying to collect all this stuff, yet at the end, it's not going to matter. So it's a matter of material things. They really don't have the value that we believe we do. But what about this? What worth does a truly intimate relationship with God have? Right? Truly intimate. Now, it's not a coincidence that we're studying the tabernacle, and guess what? That tabernacle is a picture of. It is a picture of true intimacy with God. That's what we're seeking, right? What's it worth, right? What's it worth as we look at this tabernacle to have true joy, to have a perfect peace, a perfect love, to have absolute contentment, and to know what your purpose in life is. You realize that all of the population of the planet is seeking for those very things? They're seeking for those answers. They're desperately looking, and yet God says, look, this is available to you. Guys, it is invaluable. It's worth more than all the money in the world. You can't buy it. Don't matter how much money you had. If you had every penny in the world, you cannot buy those things. They're only available through a surrendered life that's given unto God. God can give us that peace. God can give us that contentment. God can do things in our life that we cannot possibly imagine. And we think about that and you go, man, isn't that what everybody would search after? Isn't that what everybody would be after? But unfortunately, guys, our world right now is filled with Christians who would gladly take the money over God. And we hear that and we go, man, is that really, really, really? Unfortunately, that's an absolute fact of life. We live in a church age right now. The Bible defines it as the Laodicean church age. The word Laodicea means rights of the people. It's a church age where people are filled with self. They're consumed with what they want. It comes down to this. If we ask the average person in their day, what do they think? God first or me first? I guarantee you it's me first. We live in a me first mindset. 2 Timothy 3, 4. Paul is speaking about our church age that we live in right now. He says this, 2 Timothy 3, 4. Traitors, heady, high-minded. And here's the part right here I want you to hear. Lovers of pleasures. And these are the two words that break your heart. More than lovers of God. Yep. 
lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And the sad news is that a majority of us, that's who we are. We don't, may not want to admit it. We may not want to live it here. But in our life that we live outside of this church, outside of live on Sundays, we have a tendency to fall into this category through our conversations, through our lifestyles, through the things that we focus on. Luke 12, 34 says this, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your treasure is the results of what you spend your time and energy investing in. Where do we spend our time? Where do we spend our energy? What has our attention? Because guess what? That's our treasure. And where my treasure is, there will your heart be also. And what's so incredibly ironic about this whole study is that gold is a picture of absolute holiness and righteousness. That's what it pictures from heavenly perspective. But when you shift to an earthly perspective, and we look at that 2,930 pounds of gold sitting in this room, what does it do to us? It feeds our flesh. We react in the moment. Guys, countless wars have gone on throughout millennia that people have been murdered and killed and thousands and thousands and thousands of people have died over gold. Think about the gold rush. What were people willing to do? Risk it all. And hundreds of thousands of people died throughout this country just trying to get their hands on a couple of flecks of gold. And to this day, if I had a gold bar, someone would gladly kill me for that gold bar. It feeds our flesh. It feeds our lust. But see what happens if you have a different perspective on it. See, if you see it with heavenly eyes instead of carnal eyes, carnal eyes, it causes destruction. It draws us away from God, right? But if we have heavenly eyes, a heavenly perspective, we see it for what it is. In 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 through 11, it says this, But they that, which be, that, that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, a trap, yeah. and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. They get in over their head. And they find themselves in a horrible mess because of what they desire. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil. And then understand that is misquoted all the time. Bible people say that money is the root of all evil. It is the love of money. It is the heart. It's always the heart. That's always what God looks at. The Bible tells us in, Jan- in, in, uh, in uh, 1 Samuel 17. He says, you know, man looketh on the outward appearance and God looketh on the heart. So this is the issue. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they desired it, right? They have erred from the faith. God's literally literally drawn them away from God and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. They're now living with the, 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 the ramifications of their choices. Verse 11, but thou... Oh, man of God, speaking to us, he's saying, look, if you're going to be a man of God, a woman of God, this is what I need you to do. Flee these things. Flee these things. Listen, flee means run and run away from, run away from these things and follow after righteousness. Hello. Remember this righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience and meekness. What Paul's saying is, hey, man, if your eyes are on the things of this world, when you stand before the Lord one day, you are going to stand before him with nothing to show for it. You will stand before him ashamed. And there is an accounting coming for all of us. We're supposed to live for him. And most so many times we live for ourselves. Matthew 6, 19 says this, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, right? Where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves do break through and steal, right? So with that, with that earthly perspective, that's what we're doing. We're laying up treasures for ourselves in heaven. And he's saying, look, those things are all going to corrode. They're not going to last. But if our eyes are on heavenly gold, now, heavenly gold, that's a result of the works that we do with our right heart. 
righteousness, godliness. We're serving the Lord with the right heart. We're laying up treasures in heaven, it says in Matthew 6, 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. He says these are eternal. The ones that you're trying to live and trying to set up, they're all temporal and they will not last. We know this to be true, yet we live in such a, a, we're so distracted by the world. Guys, eternal treasures are those things, things like righteous acts and the souls of men and women and boys and girls. And on that day, the heavenly gold representing our righteous acts, man, they will be the treasures that God will give to us. And what's so awesome is you and I won't be able to hold on to it. We will be so ready and so, so we want to give them up so quick because you know who we want to do? We want to pour them at the feet of our Savior in thanks to him. Because we understand if we received them there, we did not earn them for ourselves. We earned them for him. Amen. We did it with that heart, that heart. So now we move on to the silver. Verse 25. And the silver of them that were numbered of the congregation was an hundred talents and a thousand seven hundred and three score and fifty shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary. Now, if we total that up with the shekels and we total it up with the talents, we end up with 10,044 pounds of silver. Holy moly, 10,000 pounds of silver. That currently at this today's value is about $2 million in silver. Verse number 26 is this. A becca for every man... That is half a shekel. So a becca is a measurement. It is about, about six grams. After the shekel of the sanctuary, again, remember, that's our measurement, after the shekel of the sanctuary, for everyone that went to be numbered from 20 years old. So anybody that's 20 years old and older and upward for 600,000, 3,550 men. So 603,550 men were told, look, you have got to give an offering. It's going to be half of a shekel that you're going to give towards this, towards this uh, sanctuary. So we see it's interesting about that is the fact that they are the only ones listed. This group is the only one that's listed. We see no one else listed that made a contribution. And there's a reason for that. Look at this, Exodus 30, verse 13. This is where the commandment was given to make this offering. This they shall give, everyone that passeth among them that are numbered half a shekel after the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel, and it, see it qualifies it right for your force. It says a shekel is 20 geras. Uh, a, 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 a sanctuary shekel is 40 geras. And half shekel shall be the offering of the Lord. So it appears what's happening here, because there's going to be so much silver required, we're talking about 20,000 pounds of silver, or 10, what did I say it was? Is it 20,000? A bunch. I don't remember what it was. 10,000. We could have doubled it. Who knows? Um, so what you notice here is the fact that this is given for the purpose. And we go, look, the, all of this silver is required. And what's so cool is God is so incredibly consistent. Check this out, okay? Remember that silver is a picture of Redemption, right? Picture of redemption. So just look at how the Lord closes this part. When he tells them in Exodus 30, 13, he's going to close this uh, description of the offering. And listen to what he says about the offering that they're supposed to give. And thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shalt appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. He says it's going to go to the tabernacle, that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before the Lord to make an atonement for your souls, pointing to the purpose of the tabernacle which is redemption, which is what redemption requires, an atonement. It requires an atonement. Again, God revealing the prophetic and the practical purpose of the tabernacle in the same moment. Gotta love the Bible. Verse 27, 
And of the hundred talents of silver were cast the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the veil and hundred sockets of the hundred talents, a talent for a socket. Now the talents, remember the talents, a big block of silver that weighs about a hundred pounds and they're going to make sockets. These are the base plates for the columns that they're going to stand on. So we see here he, is, he says, now we actually get this breakdown. What's interesting, and then this is very, very cool, is that God shows it's like the offering that was freely given, the one that was given with the right heart, okay? That 100 talents, we know that's separate of the shekels that were given by the 600,000 men. And what's interesting about that, because it's given with the right heart, guess where it shows up? It shows up only in the sanctuary, where it is the place that represents God's holiness. So that silver is set aside from the other silver that's going to be used. It's specifically set up so that it's going to be in the holy place and in the holy of holies. Again, atoning offering was required. But see, understand, it's going to only show up in the outer court. The silver that they give is separated out from the other silver that was given with the right heart. It's set aside, and it's used only in the outer court. And the outer court is a place of judgment, right? It has a different purpose, even though it represents the same thing. So we can see that the heart behind the offering is extremely key. Verse 28, And of the thousand seven hundred seventy and five shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid with chapters and filled them. So he says, look, the the money that was taken from that offering is now going to be used in the outer court, okay? It's going to be used for the hooks and things of that nature. So these parts are silver. These parts are made of silver. And understand that silver is a picture of redemption. In the outer court, they only come in contact, okay? So we understand that the silver shows up on the wooden poles, right? The wooden poles are a picture of humanity, corruptible humanity. So we're in the sanctuary. The silver is in contact with gold. If you were inside of the tabernacle itself, you would have these golden posts, these big wooden posts that have been sealed with gold. And they're sitting in these sockets of silver. And that silver is the redemption that separates. And what happens is that silver, as it's, or that, that gold as it separates, that gold represents holiness and the deity of Christ. And what happens is the silver is the bridge. So what happens, here's the deity of God that's going to come in contact with the earth. And the thing that that gold that's going to bring the earth in contact with God's deity is redemption. The silver is what pictures that, and it's inside of the tabernacle only. Every socket there is made of silver. Every base, every time the world comes in contact with God, it's going to do it by way of redemption. And then we're going to see it as it works also in the tops of the poles outside. And that brings us then, as we work from the, from the silver, it brings us to the brass, okay? The brass that is used in the tabernacle. Verse number 29. And the brass of the offering was 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. That works out to 7,063 and a half pounds of brass. That's a chunk of brass, which has a current value of about nine grand. So probably a lot of us, we might be able, if we got a loan, we could go, if you want 7,000 pounds of brass, you can get it. And what do we make with the brass? I'm glad you asked. Okay, here we go. Verse 30. And therewith he made the sockets of the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So we see that as you're going to walk into that tabernacle proper, inside of that tent, the only part of it that is exposed is that right where the doorway is. And where it's exposed, guess what? That, those have got to be made of brass. That's a place of judgment. The outer court is a place of judgment. So first of all, those base plates are made of brass. And then the brazen altar, or the brazen altar and the brazen grates for it, and all the vessels of the altar. And the sockets of the court round about, and the sockets of the court gate, and all the pins of the tabernacle, and all the pins of the court round about. Okay, so I want you to notice something here. The order with which God has listed these materials is important. Everything in the Bible is done for a systematic purpose. There's always a reason behind it. So as we look at this, he followed a specific pattern with each material and what it was to use for. What's important to understand is that with God, there's always more than what appears on the surface. 
So as the Lord went from the gold, now understand, the gold represents deity, represents holiness. That had us focused on the righteousness and the sanctification of God himself. I've got a picture here, okay? So this is showing you the tabernacle as a whole. And what you'll find is he started from the inside and he worked his way out. He dealt with the gold. The gold is only inside of that structure. So as the Lord went from the gold, representing his holiness and his deity, we see here then that, that, God, uh, that, God, that the gold was only found, as I said, in the sanctuary, and then he shifts to the silver. And what we find is with the silver, that again, that is that bridge between the inner court and the outer court. The only metal that shows up in both places is the silver. Redemption in both. Okay? So as we're looking at that outer court, understand the silver was collected in the greatest quantity because as a picture of redemption, it would be represented throughout the entire tabernacle. We see it in the sockets of the tabernacle itself as the bridge between God and the earth, the world. We see it again in the outer court as it is the bridge between humanity, pictured in the wooden poles that you see all the way around the outside edge, and sanctification. Sanctification, understand, everywhere this linen was to be hooked to those poles, there was a silver hook. So the very thing that took that corruptible pole, that picture of humanity, and connected it to sanctification was redemption. Everywhere you see that, everywhere sanctification is, it's connected with redemption. The tops are silver. The bars are silver. The hooks are silver. But once you come down to the ground, guess what it does? Changes immediately. Right there on the spot, it shifts, and it becomes brass. We see again here is picturing this aspect of judgment. All this whole outer court, everything outside is all about Judgment. And that takes us back to this. If we were to take this, go back to the very first phrase we started with in this Exodus 31, 38, 21, it says this, this is the sum of the tabernacle. This is the sum of the tabernacle. And what we might say is this, this is the judgment, the judgment, because this sums up the tabernacle. We're going to judge what it's all about. And what we see here is if we apply that same idea of judgment, to ourselves, right? If we took the same phrase and we said, this is the sum of David. This is the sum of Eric. This is the sum of Linda, right? And we said, look, this is a summation of who you are and what you're made of, right? And if we thought about that, how would we do we assessed our Christian walk, our Christian life, and who we are in Christ, and we summed it up, and we had a phrase, and this is who you are. And let's say God gave 10 verses, and he laid out the real us, not who we profess ourselves to be, not who we pretend to be, but who we really are, and he laid it out. How would we do? While you're thinking about that, let me throw in a couple verses to help you. Romans 14, 12 says this. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Every one of us. And here's another. Matthew 12, 36. But I say unto you that every idle word, this is Jesus himself, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. Every idle word. You hear that? The things that we don't think are important. No big deal. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear, listen to this, this is talking to Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, the works of this life, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. 
God says, you are going to give an account to me. Amen. Some of us, that's scary. Right. But I need you to understand, this is not a damnation judgment. Okay? If you're a born-again child of God, that already took place. There was a judgment that was paid on the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ bore the weight of our judgment. So our judgment for sin has been taken care of. That is never an issue. So we have a judgment of service, of service. God says, I've saved you. Now what will you do for me? From here on out, what are you going to do for me? What's going to be the result? What's going to be the fruit of your life? What will happen? And when we give an account before the Lord, what will we say? You know, God, I was really busy. I just was kind of distracted for that 50 years. Just really wasn't paying attention like I should have. Could I go back and I can promise you that all of us, when we stand at that day, will all wish one thing. Could I go back and do it again? Could I just go back and have a different perspective? Could I just have a different heart? Could I not be so selfish? Could I just do this for you instead of doing it for me? Why did I have to be so distracted? Why did everything was thrown before me? Why did I take the bait, man? I could see so clearly what he was doing. I could see every, everything that was laid before me. I could see all the temptations and the, temptations and the, tra- and, and, and the traps that were set up for me. I saw my eyes looking at these things of the world being drawn to this stuff. And every time I went towards that stuff, I turned away from you. And what I thought was so important on that earth, when I stand here and look in your eyes, doesn't mean a thing. And all the things that I disregarded as unimportant, now I realize that's the treasure that I missed out on. Can I just go back? And that won't be an option for us. We won't have an option to go back. This judgment will be about our service. And understand, it's service unto the Lord. I'm not saving service for the Lord. Reason being, if you take that phrase, service, it says unto the Lord. Unto the Lord. If you go to your King James Bible and you search, that phrase unto the Lord shows up 482 times. And almost every single time, it's talking about service that is wholeheartedly given to God. It's not for God. It's unto God. I do it because I love him. I do it because I'm thankful. I do it because of the fact that I understand who I really am. Listen to this one example in Romans 14, 8. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or we die, we are the Lord's. My heart is that I am God's. And I want to live this life for his glory. See, because service unto the Lord is service that's done out of a loving, grateful heart. This is what God desires. This is what is acceptable in his sight. This is what we're working towards. Right heart behind it. We might compare it to the offering that was given by the Israelites, right? Why was it allowed to be inside of the Holy of Holies? Why was it allowed to be there? Because of the heart that was given. They give it with a willing heart. Listen to Paul's service for ser- listen to what Paul says about the service that we do. It's not unto God. 1 Corinthians 13, 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, I give everything I have to feed the poor, to give to the needy. And though I give my body to be burned, he said, I'm willing to be a martyr for the cause of Christ. 
And anybody would look at me giving up everything I own and they go, man, look at that righteous man. From the outside, he's righteous. Look at that guy going to the cross. He's going to get burned for the word of God. That guy's got to be righteous. He's got to be. No doubt about it. Look at his actions. But listen to what he says. And have not charity. My actions, oh man, they look righteous. But my heart. Have not charity. Charity does not just mean love. Charity is God's love personified in humanity. God's love. Not selfish love. God's love. And if we do that, he says, and you have not charity. Remember, we're going to stand before God one day. It profiteth me nothing. I will gain nothing. Though I thought in my works, I did so many amazing things, but because my heart wasn't right, it will profit me nothing. You see, one day when we stand accountable before God and we give an account for the life we have lived, the Lord will judge our service and the heart behind it. It will either have been done in service to our ego, our pride, or our own selfish lust as we sought recognition or wanted to ease our conscience, or it will have been done in loving gratitude unto the Savior. See, this is where it gets hard. See, if it's the former, there's no excuse. Because as we said before, in 1 Samuel 17, it tells us that God looketh on the heart. Listen to Jesus' warning about this kind of heart, right? A heart that does it for the wrong reason. In Matthew 6, 1, he says, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men. Don't make your offerings before men. To be seen of them, because if you're doing it to be seen of them, otherwise ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Again, we go to accountability. There will be no reward. And what are these rewards, right? What are these rewards? What's God going to do for us? I believe that's why this passage in Exodus 38 is here. I believe it's exactly why it's here. That day, on that day, that day, the Lord will be deciding our inheritance. He'll be deciding what we will receive, what our rewards will be for our faithful service unto Him. Now, remember back in Colossians 3, I told you we were going to go back there to that verse, right? We understand now it's about accountability. It's about standing before the Lord. And here he is. He's assessing us. Listen to this. Colossians 3, 24. When we are living for God, we've got the right heart. He says, knowing that of the Lord ye shall, re- that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. When you stand before him one day, he is going to decide what you will receive. Our question today is this. If our rewards were based upon the life that we have lived, As a Christian for the last 12 months, just the last year, and that's what we're going to judge. And we look at everything that we've done, every thought that's run through our mind, every action that that we've done, every step that we've taken. And God said, this is what I'll judge you upon. How would we do? Would we be standing empty handed before God's throne as we looked into his eyes filled with shame, or would be so joyous that we gave the Lord our best and served him with our whole hearts as we received our rewards, humbled by what God pours out for us. See, it's so amazing. It's the fact that the the very things that God's going to shower upon us will be the very things that we're going to want to give back to him. And the thing that's so cool, the Bible says it's gold, silver, and precious stones. 
The very thing that he used to build the tabernacle, the very things that they poured out, the very offerings that they made, the very things that was a picture of, that's what God's going to give to us. And you know what we'll do? We'll be able to turn around and give it back to him. See, the problem is the choice isn't up to God. It's up to us. We choose every day. Will we serve the Lord? Will we serve ourselves? Will we lay up treasures in earth or on earth? Or will we lay up treasures in heaven? It's not determined by the Lord. It's determined by us. And he says, and if you want to do this, I will empower you to do it. I will cheer you on. I will help you attain it. You will do exactly what you were created to do. But if you'll turn your back, I'll try to draw you, but I won't force your hand. Because in the end, you will be individually accountable for the choices that you make. He stepped in for us in salvation. If you receive Christ as your Savior, you are a born-again child of God. Your determination of whether or not you're going to heaven or hell, that's done. Damnation is not a possibility for you. But boy, I'm telling you what, the life that we'll live in the millennium, the life we're going to live with God, is determined based upon what we receive during this judgment. We choose every day. Serve the Lord or serve ourselves. But see, either way, either way, whether we serve ourselves or whether we serve God, either way, we will one day face God's reckoning. We will one day face Him. And there'll be no one that can stand in for you. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You won't be able to speak up for yourself because God's going to take your life and he's going to lay it out for you. Boom. And if it was just the last 12 months, thoughts, actions, deeds, all that stuff just laid out like a movie and you just sit there and watch it and we're like this. I don't want to see it. I remember what I did. I know what I did in that moment. I know it. I remember it. God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he's just going to stand there and say, I gave you every opportunity in the world. I supported you throughout. I gave you my word. I placed my spirit within you. I set opportunities in front of you. I protected you from evil. I fought battles that you didn't even see. And yet you totally turned your back on me to serve your flesh, to, serve, to focus on earthly treasures that all will burn up. And there's all, right now, naked you came into this world and naked you shall leave. You knew this. You knew this. So why? What will we say? There'll be nothing we can say. But praise the Lord, today we're still here. Today we're still here. And instead of having to come back and start over, we can say, you know what? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm drawing a line in the sand. And you know what? I've lived for the world before, but I will not do it anymore. Amen. <laughs> I choose God. If you've lived with regret up to today, draw a line in the sand. You can't change the past. But we have every bit of chance. We have changed the future, man. Who determines what we do? We do. The devil has no control over us. He only has a control that we allow him to have. We empower him every day or we deny him. The Bible says, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
he will flee from you. He will run in fear. And all we have to do, not rage, not fight, not battle, submit. Submit and resist. That's not very hard. But for selfish Laodicean people who are full of self and desires of lusts and pleasures, it's hard. That's why the Bible says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. If we're to have a good reckoning with the Lord, we need to be followers. Not of the world, but of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for today and what you've done and what you've shown us, God, through this incredible passage of Scripture. Uh, thank you, Lord, for speaking, Lord, if no one else, but to my heart. I know that you have, and God, I pray that you help us. Lord, as we do know that we are facing a reckoning, we will face you one day, Lord God, and I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that we not stand before you ashamed. God, help us to take this day and the days, however many you'll give us from this day forward. Help us, Lord, to dedicate them to serving you, Lord God, not out of obligation, not out of religious fervor, but, Lord, because our hearts are broken for the things of God, because we have a true compassion for the world that's broken, that needs to know you, and God, because we want to bring glory to your holy and wonderful name. God, thank you for saving us. Thank you, Lord, for calling us into your service. Thank you for empowering us to do what you've called us to do. And God, I pray that you'll direct us now. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed. If you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor, I don't know that I'm a child of God. Guys, 18 years ago, I was lost. I did not know Christ. I'd never, ever been in church my entire life. Never experienced the gospel. Never heard anyone present it to me, never saw it in the Bible. I didn't know anything about Jesus, but what was so beautiful was the fact that he came to me in my broken state. And someone came and shared the gospel with my wife and I, and the same very, that very same night, it's been 19 years now, 2001, we fell on our knees, broken and lost, and stood up redeemed. Not because we're anything special. No, broken, no more broken than anybody else. But it's the power of God to restore and if you're here today and you said, I've never been restored. I've never received Christ as my Savior. If I die today, I don't know where I'm going to go. Let me promise you this. If you're willing to receive him, he is more than ready, more than ready to receive you. So with our heads bowed and with our eyes closed, if you want to pray and you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to give you that opportunity. If you're already saved, pray for those that are not. Pray for those that are online, that are watching, those that are watching this recorded one day that will watch this. Pray for their souls that they would receive Christ with their heads bowed and with their eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, all you have to understand is the fact that you are lost and undone without Him and that He came and died for you because He loves you. And you understand that your sin is what separates you from God. And we're all sinners. The Bible says for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. We're all dealing with the same issue. But we have a wonderful God that loves us. And that judgment that we will face as sinners, Jesus faced on the cross and He will do it for you if you'll receive him. So their heads bowed and their eyes closed. You can pray this prayer. Now, if you pray the prayer and it's just words, don't waste your time. But if you, with your heart, want to receive Christ, he will receive you right now. He knows exactly where you are. Their heads bowed and eyes closed. Repeat after me in your heart and in your mind. Pray. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for my sin. I know that you died for me because you love me. And by faith, I'm asking you to come into my heart to save my soul and to give me a home in heaven. Lord, thank you for saving me. I will see you in heaven one day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.